Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of his word, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be able to concentrate clearly that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us the understanding of your word, and that as we study your word, that he would use that to challenge each of us in terms of our own thinking, in terms of our own actions, in order to uh, cause us to change to be conformed to your word, to think as you would have us to think and live as you would have us to live. Father, we pray that we might be responsive to the teaching of your word and its authority this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. Now, last Sunday morning, we did a survey over these next uh, seven or eight chapters covering the life and ministry of Elisha. Give you that overview and saw that there are various different uh, vignettes given of different instances in the life of uh, Elisha and his ministry, and many of these involve different miracles. Some of these miracles seem a little bit odd or a little bit strange at times, such as the uh, floating axe head. I can't wait till we get there. First time I went to college, first Sunday I was uh, at Nacogdoches, I went to First Baptist Church, and the sermon was on the floating axe head. I always wondered how he got whatever it was he said from that passage, but so we'll study it and see what the significance of that is, but as I pointed out last time, as we go through uh, these chapters, there's an emphasis on the sufficiency of God's grace. That's just the thread that runs through this this section because we find the northern kingdom of Israel, and here we have a uh, map showing the northern kingdom there. I'll use that map. The area shaded in green and the uh, uh, upper level is the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and this is the uh, part of the uh, nation to whom Elijah and Elisha were sent. They're not primarily prophets to the southern kingdom, but to the northern kingdom, calling them to repentance. Elijah focused on more of the negative bringing to bear against the 
false religion brought in by Ahab and Jezebel, showing the error of it, whereas Elisha's ministry emphasizes the grace of God more and the sufficiency and provision of God for his people. And so we see Israel at a time, the northern kingdom of Israel, at a time of severe economic distress. This distress has been going on for 10 or maybe 15 years, the time of the drought under Elijah, and then since then there have been other droughts and other famines. And so we see in many of these instances in uh, Second Corinthians, I mean Second Kings chapter four through Second Kings chapter uh, thirteen, we'll see various instances where they are dealing with famine. They're dealing with economic collapse. They're dealing with uh, a devaluation of currency. They're dealing with an inability to get food. And this has a lot of parallels to circumstances in some people's lives today. We, to order, in order to understand the significance of this and why. God has chosen to focus on these instances and to tell us about these particular uh, situations and to focus on these uh, events as opposed to many other things that probably went on during the life and ministry of Elisha. We must understand how God is working in the nation of Israel. And there are many parallels to how he will also work in our lives. And first we have to really understand the dynamics of God's relationship to Israel in the northern kingdom. At the time of the Exodus, when God brought the nation out of slavery in Egypt, when God redeemed them from their bondage to slavery in Egypt, he brought them out and made them a new people and gave them a new identity, and this is parallel, of course, to our salvation. In order for us to, for there to be a nation, there have to be three things. There has to be a land, there has to be a people to live in the land, and there has to be a body of law to govern the people who live in the land. You have to have those three things in order to have a nation, a land, a people, and a law. God had given the land of Canaan to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those descendants were living as slaves in Egypt, so God needed to bring them out to redeem them from that slavery in Egypt to make them a free people. And then God had to give them a body of law so that they could govern themselves and so there would be uh, law and order within the nation. And the basis for that law, which we know as the Mosaic Law or the uh, Sinaitic Covenant, is grounded in their identity. Now, this is really important for us to understand that law has its ultimate foundation in God. All law does. It's not something people just invented. It didn't just pop up by chance out of the primordial ooze like uh, some people think everything else did. Law is ultimately given by God and comes from his holy character. And so two key verses that we find in, in the law are Exodus 19.6, where God says to the nation, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The meaning of the word holy for most people has something to do with being morally pure, 
but the core meaning of the word is the idea of being set apart to the service of a deity. The word holy is often contrasted with profane or the common. Uh, the profane or the common is everyday use, everyday function, everyday operation. And the holy is that which is unique and distinct because it is set apart for the service of God. And only secondarily does it pick up these other ideas of moral purity and where it is related to righteousness and justice. So the idea of being a holy nation emphasizes their being set apart to the service of God and emphasized that Israel, above all other nations on the earth, has a unique and distinct role in history. That's the foundation. So God is going to expect them to live differently from everybody else, that the way they govern themselves, the way they live, is going to say something about the person of God and is going supposed to reflect his character in justice and his character in compassion and in love and in grace. So in Exodus 19.6, he says they are to be they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in Leviticus 20, verse 7, we have a statement that's found in several other verses, and it's to consecrate themselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Now, that first statement focuses on what we would call positional holiness. They are in a position as a nation of being set apart to God. That is their legal position bound to God by a covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the, which is a legal contract. So that is their position. Positionally, they are holy and distinct and set apart to God. Leviticus 27 is talking about their experiential holiness, their experiential sanctification, that in terms of how they live, how they think, how they operate, how they govern themselves, how they engage in business, how they raise their children, how they educate the next generation, these are to be unique and distinct, and that is a call to be holy. And it's all, every time you find this command, it's always grounded in this statement, because I am the Lord your God. You are to be holy because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who delivered you from bondage in Egypt. By application, that comes over to the believer today, we are to consecrate ourselves and to be holy experientially because God is the one who redeemed us. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins so that by simply believing or trusting in him, we can have eternal life. Once we are saved by faith in Christ alone, once we are saved, we are positionally set apart to God. We are bound to him by a contractual relationship also made with Israel called the New Covenant, which doesn't come into effect till later, but it has secondary benefits, which we've studied, and I don't want to get distracted by this morning, but... That we have a positional relationship based on faith alone in Christ alone. And then as we grow and mature, we have a secondary experiential relationship, experiential sanctification, experiential holiness, our walk with the Lord, whereby we are to be set apart to his service. So there has to be cleansing, utilization of First John 1, 9, confession of sin, in order for us to continue to grow and mature as 
as believers. So the nation was set apart to God. They had a unique government. They were a theocratic nation. Theocracy means God rules. Doesn't mean religious, religion has a high place in the culture. That's what modern pagans want us to think. You hear many, uh, people today who do not like the evangelical right or the fact that they try to be involved in, in politics or influence government. They say all they want is a theocracy. Never believe that. That is the enemy's propaganda. Never in history have Christians in this nation since 1776 wanted to establish a theocracy. But they were Christians who founded this nation, and they thought within a biblical framework, and that was how they understood freedom and liberty and individual responsibility. And it came out of their understanding of God's word, and they never established a theocracy in the Constitution, but it was heavily influenced by biblical and Christian thinking. It's influenced by elements of the Enlightenment and other things at the time, but the primary influence comes out of the Bible. There are thousands of allusions to the Scripture in the speeches, in the writings, in the legislations that came out of those uh, founding fathers at that particular time. So God established a unique thing in Israel, a theocracy where God was the ruler and the bureaucracy was carried out by the priests. But it was because Israel was to be a special people. Now, as God identified himself with Israel and identified Israel with him, God gave them a, a law, a law to govern them, and he entered into this uh, covenant or contract with the people, and in that covenant, God spelled out their responsibilities to him because he had redeemed them. They had new responsibilities toward God, and God spelled out the fact that if they were uh, faithful in fulfilling these responsibilities, then they would have certain benefits. And if they were disobedient and if they were irresponsible, then there would be certain penalties. And we call those benefits and penalties blessings and curses. Uh, another word for curse is judgments. And, in, and what we see is that these uh, legal stipulations are tied ultimately to a relationship with God so that the benefits and the penalties come ultimately not on the basis of having a right political theory or a correct economic theory, but ultimately everything is impacted by their relationship with God. This is something that is lost in the discussion often today that we think that if we just have the right philosophy of government or the right philosophy of economics, then we will have prosperity and freedom. But what the Bible says is you can't have prosperity and freedom in this life uh, in any system of economics or politics unless you first have spiritual freedom and freedom from sin. That is the real issue. If you don't have freedom from sin, then you are a slave in your thinking and a slave in your soul, and it doesn't matter what the economic system is or the political system is. On the other hand, if you are spiritually free in your soul, then you have real freedom, and it doesn't matter what the external political system or economic system might be because you have real freedom in your soul. 
So what we see here is an important principle in, in the law, especially in Leviticus 26 where these uh, blessings and curses are outlined. The principle that economic prosperity or collapse was based on spirituality, morality, integrity, and character. Now, that is not what you will learn when you're getting your MBA at Harvard. That is not what you're going to learn when you're taking uh, Economics 101 at the University of Houston. But that is what the Bible teaches, is that economic prosperity is ultimately the result of spiritual prosperity. And we can't quantify that. So you can't take that out and measure it in the classroom. You can't quantify it in history. You can't, you can't observe it. But that's what we see all the way through, uh, all the way through the scriptures. The foundation for the blessings and curses is found in the first three verses of Leviticus chapter 26. And there, the Lord says, in a summary of the Ten Commandments, You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. Summation of the first two commandments. Uh, Second verse, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Third verse, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them. That's the foundation. You'll never see that as a foundation for good economic theory in any economic book you pick up down at Barnes and Noble. But the result of doing those things would have an impact in the spiritual realm. God said, if you do these things, then I will, I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down. That's without fear of threat or criminality. None will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. So these benefits, these blessings, what we all really want in life, don't come because you've got a good theory of economics or a good political theory, but because you are living in obedience to God. But if you're disobedient to God, God promised the Israelites that there were certain consequences. Leviticus 26, 14, and 15, But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgment so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, then after all of this, uh, he expresses all these various uh, consequences in terms of military defeat and economic recession and oppression. And all this is summed up in the first three stages of divine discipline. But in verses 18 to 22, we find uh, the Lord saying, And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. That's what happened with those three and a half years of drought under Elijah. There's no rain. That's what that pictures. The sky is like iron, no rain. It's just, it just beats, the sun beats down on you and the earth is hard like bronze. Uh, verses 20 and 21. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. In other words, you're going to not have any food production, so you'll be in a time of famine. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, 
I will bring on seven times more plagues according to your sins, and also send wild beasts among you, and uh, which will rob your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number. All of this was what God promised in terms of divine discipline. That's what the northern kingdom is undergoing. Now, those laws, those stipulations were only for Israel because only Israel had that covenant to God. But there are principles that are there that do apply across time and across with other nations, that if you reject what the Bible teaches about absolutes, then there will be negative consequences in life. If you are walking in obedience to God and you are applying the principles of his word, then the result of that will also be prosperity and and growth. Not in the exactly the same way because that covenant is only made with Israel as a distinct holy nation. But there are economic principles that do apply. Now, the northern kingdom is going through this kind of famine and this kind of crisis at the beginning of Second Kings chapter 4. And we see this in the life of a family of believers. There's a husband who is one of the sons of the prophets, and he has a wife, and he has two sons, and he dies. And he has been uh, in a position where he has been... Uh, it, it has been necessary for him to uh, enter into some sort of indebtedness to probably someone he worked for. That's the context of many of these uh, laws, as we'll see, and related to indebtedness in, in the Mosaic Law. And so he dies and he has this debt. And this is the background for Second Kings 4, 1 through 7. And there we read that, A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. That's a technical term in the Hebrew, meaning he was a strong, mature believer. Because of the famine and because of their uh, economic situation, he had to enter into a some sort of short-term loan. That's what they had in Israel at the time, some sort of short-term loan in order to survive. But now that he is dead, the creditor, and the Hebrew word here for creditor is uh, the Hebrew word nasha, N-A-S-H-A, nasha, and it really means the usurer. Now, there's an old uh, English word that we don't use too much today, but... But the Hebrews had a synonym for it, the one who bites. They called him the biter. He's the loan shark. That was the ancient term for the modern version of a loan shark. And he has now coming to collect his debt, and because she doesn't have anything, he wants to take his two sons to be uh, slaves, to be indentured servants, which was uh, legitimate under the law, but not in this kind of a situation. They are not, you could indenture yourself, but you can't indenture someone else. And so that is where this creditor is out of line. That's why he's pictured as this, this loan shark. And so Elisha is going to give her a solution. Verse two says, what shall I do for you? Tell me what, uh, what do you have in your house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. She is down to the last of of anything in her pantry, all that's left is this jar of oil, probably holding a couple of gallons worth of cooking oil, olive oil, and that's it. There's nothing else. There's no grain. uh, There's no bread. 
There is no meat. There are no vegetables. That is all that is left. And the creditor wants to take everything from her and leave her with nothing to uh, to sustain her. Now, it, you can't understand what's going on here if you don't understand what how the law was written in terms of debts, indebtedness, and creditors in uh, the time under the Mosaic Law. What this creditor is attempting to do is to force the woman to sell her sons into this indentured uh, servitude position. Now, to understand this, you need to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 25. Le- Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 and following. This is a key passage on the use of money. Now, what, what you should remember here is I'm not saying the Mosaic Law directly applies to us. But what we see in the Mosaic Law, as well as other aspects of Scripture, is a reflection of economics as God has designed economics in creation. You know, the Bible's not a textbook on economics, but there are many places in the Mosaic Law, as well as in the Gospels, the parables of Jesus, and things that are stated by Paul in the New Testament, that all agree with each other and reflect God's viewpoint on how we are to handle money and the financial resources that we have and not to become enslaved to money, which happens when we get too involved in debt. Debt can enslave a person more than anything else and wipe them out. So we have some uh, economic theory that is embedded in these chapters. Verse 35 of Leviticus 25 states, If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him. Note, it didn't say then you call health and human services. You don't call the welfare office. You don't go get food stamps from the government. It's the individual's responsibility within the nation to take care of other individuals who are going through economic crisis. But if you've indebted yourself and your mortgage to the hilt and you've maxed out all your credit cards because you're pursuing a materialistic dream, then when your son or daughter or your best friend or your neighbor loses their job and they need help, you have sacrificed your spiritual ministry in their lives because you have enslaved yourself to debt. That's the picture you see in Scripture. So the picture here is if a, uh, someone else, another Israelite, so this is a pattern or a picture of ministry of believer to believer. That, I'm not saying they were all believers, but that's, that's where the picture goes. So if one of your brethren becomes poor, falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him. It's individual responsibility going back to part of divine institution number one. You shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. In other words, we are to take care of others. This is not somebody who's being lazy, not somebody who's being irresponsible. Remember, in the New Testament, Paul said basically in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that if you don't work or you won't work, you don't eat. There's no basis in the Scripture for a welfare system for people who are lazy and irresponsible. But if you will work, if you are able to work, and yet there's nothing available, then we are to take care of one another. 
Now, verse 36 says, Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. Now, the interpretation of this verse has really gotten screwed up. It got screwed up by the rabbis. It got really twisted and distorted in the Middle Ages so that usury became either an an excessive interest or something else. Notice the context, and this is true of every passage that deals with usury or interest in the New Testament. It says, take no usury or interest from him. From who? From the unemployed next-door neighbor who doesn't have any resources. The point is that the usury or the interest was not to be charged on a loan that was necessary for the survival of the individual or the family. It's not talking about commercial loans. It's not talking about loans for investment. It is talking about when a loan is necessary in order to help someone survive that you're supposed to deal with them in grace and generosity and not take advantage of their uh, dire straits in order to put extra money in your pocket. So all of the passages in the Scripture that prohibit usury pro- only prohibit usury or interest in the case of giving money to the impoverished who have no way of paying it back at that particular, at that particular time. The focus is on grace. That person hasn't earned it or deserved it, perhaps, but they are facing negative consequences. They can't pay their bills. They're out of everything, and so we are to help them, not out of the goodness of your heart, but out of the goodness of God's character. That's always the pattern. Verse 37 states, You shall not lend your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. Now, what's this guy in 2 Kings 4.1 doing? He's violating the law. That is an illustration for us of how the pagan practices of the surrounding nations had infiltrated Israel so that there's no care and concern or compassion for those who are unemployed, those who are destitute because of the famine, those who are, who are uh, on the front lines of feeling the impact of God's judgment on the nation. And so it shows that the nation in their... As they have gotten away from God, they have lost their sense of genuine compassion. They have lost their grace orientation, and they are just out for whatever will uh, give them a profit. In verse 38, we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Notice that God is going to Uh, ground his commands not in some abstract principle of economic theory, not in some sort of principle of Chicago economics or socialist economics or uh, Austrian school of economics or uh, socialist school of economic theory, but he grounds it in his own character and how he's demonstrated that in the life and history of Israel. They were impoverished, they were enslaved in Egypt, and God gave them everything they needed in order to survive and to be delivered. And so the the foundation of the answer is in God's grace character. 
So verse 39, if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. Within the Mosaic law, there's the escape hatch for the people who've become destitute. They can become an indentured servant to another, uh, to another Israelite for a period of six years. Why? At a maximum six years. Because every seventh year was a year of jubilee and all indentured servants were set free. You only had short-term loans. Why? You get into long-term loans and you become financially enslaved to those mortgages and those debts. And so if you keep your loans short-term, then there is the opportunity to, to be redeemed from that slavery and that bondage, uh, that financial uh, bondage. There are regulations, though, within the law on how to uh, deal with the poor. Uh, another passage is Exodus 22:25 to 27. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, notice again the emphasis is on supplying the financial resources for those who are impoverished. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, okay, here's a situation. You've got your friend, neighbor, the employee who is now impoverished, and they need a loan to get by. You are not going to take collateral for that loan that could leave them without the means to take care of themselves. The garment represents the ability to clothe themselves, the ability to uh, keep warm at night. And so you're not, if you take it as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Without going into the details, Gary North has some excellent information on this, why this basically tears up the whole system of fractional banking, fractional reserve banking, which is what we follow in this country, which is the idea that you take a loan and, and, and take a security for that loan, then you use that in turn for securing other loans, and everything piles up, and then you get in the kind of mess we're in today. So this kind of thinking that we have that dominates our much of our modern financial institution runs counter to the wisdom that God gave and revealed within the uh, Old Testament law. The, all, and I want you again to note that all these usury principles, these usury laws are all related to dealing with the poor, not, uh, not in terms of investments or borrowing in order to do other things. It's followed up in Deuteronomy 23, 19, and 20. You shall not charge interest to your brother. And see, Deuteronomy is a summation of the law, so when it doesn't say your poor brother, but since it's summarizing what's in Exodus and Leviticus, that's what it means. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. Uh, to a foreigner, that is to a non-Jew, you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you and all to which you set your hand in the land in which you are entering to possess. Now, why does he make a distinction between the fact that you're not going to charge interest to the Jew, but you, but you can to the Gentile? The rabbis twisted this in the Middle Ages, so they would say, well, you know, we really have all of our money at the uh, benefit of the king who's a Gentile, so that means it's really his money, so we can charge interest. Nice rationalization. 
The point is that if the other Jews were freed from slavery just like you were, so you can't enslave them again. And the underlying thought was that as Jews, the presumption is that they are spiritually free, so you're not to enslave them again. But the Gentiles are spiritually enslaved by sin, so they're already slaves, so you can put them in bondage uh, financially. But there is still the escape hatch, the year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25.40 is a hired servant, is a sojourner. He shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And Deuteronomy 15.1 and following defines that. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. So the point here is that there is only short-term indebtedness, and God always provided a way where those who put themselves into indentured servitude in order to survive a financial collapse could purchase their way out, or if they waited for seven years, then at the year of Jubilee, they were, the sabbatical year, they were released, and they were freed from that uh, from that indebtedness. And the point in all of this is that we all need to recognize that we're all born impoverished. The only way we have anything is by the grace of God, and that therefore anything that we own or anything that we possess from a biblical viewpoint is simply on loan from God. We are therefore, as the New Testament teaches, stewards or administrators of the resources that God Gives us. He is the ultimate source of everything, and so we are not to hoard it in a greedy or miserly fashion, but we are to have those resources available to help others who are truly in need and truly, uh, they may not do anything to earn it or deserve it, but they are to be the legitimate recipients of grace and our compassion. Three principles we need to remember. Number one, all things that we have and enjoy come from God. You may work hard, but I know a lot of people who work hard who don't get a big return on their, on their hard work. I know other people, it doesn't seem like they work hard at all, and they just seem to be uh, very blessed by God in terms of financial and material resources. Uh, God is the one who determines the distribution of resources on the earth eventually. Or ultimately. Point two, when we focus on material blessings and possessions above God, when we focus more on serving our own indebtedness than serving God, then this is idolatry and it destroys our spiritual life. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon or money. That's not because money is evil or wealth is evil. It is wealthy people that get provide jobs. We don't get jobs from people who are poor or unemployed. It is those who have become successful that are then able to produce wealth and share that wealth with those who uh, can work for them and 
uh, help them in the pursuit of their, their business. The third point is that when we get in debt, it limits our options. It limits our ability to serve God through giving. If we are stretched financially because we bought too big a house, we have too large a mortgage, we uh, run up our credit card to the maximum every month, then when it comes time to be involved in supporting the local church or giving to missions, then we, because of our enslavement to the debt, we are unable to express our gratitude to God as we know we should. Romans 13, 7 and 8 Paul says, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, and in verse 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. The embedded principle there is that we have to be very careful about indebtedness. It's not a prohibition against debt, but the pattern that we see from the Old Testament is to keep it short and don't become indebted on the basis of things that will lose their value. Underlying much of this picture is the picture of God's redemption of man. Sin is a picture of being in debt. In debt. We are enslaved by sin. We are in, in debt, as it were, because we are under the penalty of spiritual death and condemnation. Yet Jesus Christ redeemed us. He paid the debt. That's the idea of expiation in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. The idea there that that certificate of debt was nailed to the cross, and it was paid for by Jesus Christ. So this is the uh, depiction that the Lord uses again and again in the Scriptures. Another passage there, also in Deuteronomy 15, 5 and 6, where the Lord puts the foundation on obedience to him. He says, only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments, which I command you today, for the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. And what is the result? You shall lend to many nations because of their prosperity, they would then be able to lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. So the picture that we see coming out of the Mosaic Law is one that is reinforced in the New Testament as well as, I mean, by the Lord Jesus Christ as well as by Paul, and that is to avoid indebtedness and that is to also have compassion for those who are hurting financially to be able to demonstrate and reflect the grace of God, the mercy of God, and the compassion of God by helping those who are not in a position to help themselves. This shows that the real orientation of these passages is on reflecting God's grace and that's what we come back to in 2 Corinthians chapter I mean 2 Kings chapter 4 so turn back to that uh to that particular uh passage Elisha asks for what she has and she says all I have is one jar of oil that's it so he gives her instructions in verse 3 and says go and borrow as many Vessels as you can. Get all the jars and bottles and 
buckets and bowls that you can gather and put them all in your house. Don't just gather a few. In other words, don't limit the grace of God. See, the, another issue that comes out of this, another thing that comes out of this, and we see it in a couple of the other instances in the next few chapters, is that we think that we live in a completely closed, envi- closed universe. We're taught that implicitly over and over again. We're going to run out of oil. We're going to run out of energy. The universe is going to burn up. Well, that's only true if it's a closed universe. But see, God's the one who can take a couple of fish and feed 5,000 people. God's the one who can, who can take a few loaves of bread and feed 4,000 people. God's the one who can take about two gallons of oil and out of that create about 200 gallons of oil in order to supply for all of the needs of this widow. See, God, the resources aren't limited. We're not going to run out of things because the ultimate resource is God, who is the creator of all things. So this radically changes any economic theory because all economic theories are grounded on the fact that the universe only has finite resources. But if the universe is God's creation, there's infinite resources. God is the one who's going to take care of things. We might, I doubt it, we might run out of oil. My dad was the head of uh, the codes and safeties, safety standard department at Fortinico for uh, the last 20 years of his career. He was an engineer for uh, Tennessee Gas for all of his career after he got out of the Marine Corps after World War II. And he, back in the 70s, he was saying, we have more oil. If they would, the Congress would just get out of the oil business and the energy business, we would be able to recover more oil, and it would go on for, you know, we got two or 300 years of oil just in the, in the U.S., and that's true. There's different ways to extract it. We'll invent and come up with other sources of energy. You have a nuclear energy and other things, but it's only man that limits it by his culture and by false systems of thinking. It's like the, the illustration I heard years ago that you go back 200 years ago, and the Texas Panhandle was overpopulated by the Comanche Indians. Why? Because they didn't have the technology to exploit the resources. And their worldview limited their ability to utilize the resources that God had given them. And that's what happens is that they had plenty of resources to survive and to have a, live in an area that could support a population of, you know, a million times more. Because that's what we have today. But because their worldview limited their understanding of the creation around them, it limited their access uh, to those resources. So the only reason we're running out of resources is because the worldview dominating the governments of the day do not believe there's a God who can supply all the resources that we need. And so the... Widow goes back, gathers all the jars that she can, brings her sons into the house, closes the door, and begins to fill the vessels until all of them are filled and they can't find any more vessels, any more jars to fill in the whole village. And so then in verse 7 she comes to Elisha and says, and he says, go and sell the oil and pay your debt. So God has graciously supplied everything she needs to pay her debt, and then he says, and you and your son shall live on the rest. This will take care of you on into the future, and the implication is 
throughout the time period of the drought because God great, God's grace abundantly su- uh, supplies for us and takes care of our needs. God's sufficiency is, in, is the key passage for that is in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that always having sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. God is always going to supply everything we need in order to fulfill his plan. The Greek word that's translated sufficiency is the verb arkeo. In the active voice, it means to that something is enough, it is adequate, that means it's enough to meet the demand, and it is sufficient. In the passive voice, it means that we are to be content or satisfied with something. I find that interesting. In the active voice, it means that God's supply for you is sufficient. In the passive voice, it would mean you are to be satisfied with his supply because he gives that which is needed in order to fulfill his purposes. God's grace can never be exploited to its emptiness. It can never run out. God's grace will take care of every need. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. My grace is sufficient. Uh, he says, says, my grace is sufficient for you. That's Second Corinthians 10. That uh, in all of our weakness, God supplies the strength. And so that is the lesson that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is that God supplies everything we need no matter what happens. If you lose your job, you're unemployed, the stock market crashes, whatever, God is still in charge, God's still in control, and God is still going to provide all of the needs. Ultimately, that is based for us in understanding the cross where Christ paid for all of our sins and his death is sufficient for us, so there's nothing we need to do to add to that. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, be challenged by this tremendous example of your grace and your provision, your supply uh, in this incident with this uh, widow in Israel. And things are not any different today. You can supply everything we need. We may not understand everything in a rational sense, but we know that you are the God who created everything and you will take care of us because you have provided so much for us already that you will not leave us, you will not desert us, and you will not forsake us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. From eternity past, God knew every single sin you would commit They were all paid for by Christ on the cross. Nothing was left out. You're not going to surprise God with some other sin. Everything is taken care of. Once you trust in Christ as Savior, you have eternal life, which can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would just challenge us with the things that we have studied in your word today, and we might be mindful of them, and that they might have an impact on the way we handle the resources that you give us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.